Amen. You know, obviously, when I pick out videos, I watch them. Uh, it's usually a prudent thing to do before you show it to other people. And as I watch that again, the things that I'm struck by are how many things have already happened since the end of 2019. I mean, the Patriots lost in the first round of the playoffs. It's like, that's like an all-decade experience. Uh, exactly, applause to non-Patriot fans. Uh, we have, like, the fires in Australia. I was watching that, and they were talking about the fires in the Amazon, which have already been dwarfed by the fires in Australia. Australia, not to mention what we've heard and experienced around like potential rising tensions and threats of war happening with Iran. You know, it's crazy to think we're not even two weeks into the new year, but it, it, it puts me into a strange reflective place when the world feels like this. Like even that we're in 2020, like we are in the future. It is 2020. Like that is a picture of like science fiction to me. I, I, there was a, in my other job, we had created like a plan of where we want to be, like big picture. And we set everything like in 2020, this is what we want to be true. And now we are there. You know, or even just like as I scroll online and even just looking at people that are trying to be funny, making all these like World War III memes. I think all of these experiences, whether it's a normal turning over of a new year or maybe a less normal turning over of a new decade, or if it's just me feeling like the world feels out of control in a lot of ways. But it has my existential anxiety up, I've noticed. You know, whenever I begin to feel like this, being somebody who looks to the Bible for help and insight, I often find myself gravitating towards reading the Old Testament prophets. Perhaps because I'm a little strange, that might be true, but also I found it to be uniquely helpful when I'm in places like this. It's a whole section of the Bible, about a third of the Bible, uh, that consists of the Hebrew prophets, 18 Hebrew prophets over hundreds of years writing in the midst of the rise and fall of Israel before the time of Jesus. You know, and perhaps I find myself reading this part of Bible when the world feels like it does to me. Because when the world does feel like this, it almost puts me in the right mood, the right frame of mind to really engage with what the prophets are writing. You know, the prophets were writing about heavy things in times full of existential crisis and violence and war and suffering and rampant injustice. The Hebrew prophets, people like Elijah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they were trying to speak truth to power in times where it seemed like those in power were going unchecked. It was not like prophets being written as things that were going according to plan, things were going peaceful and kind. They are calling out injustice in times where it feels like injustice was winning the day, where seemingly accountability was nowhere in sight for the suffering around them. You know, the Old Testament prophets are, I think the closest thing I can think of it, resistance literature. People calling out evil and injustice of the status quo, both condemning the wrong they see around them and then speaking hope to a different way forward. You know, the truth is, for me, I often have to be in this kind of mood, this kind of reflective, existential, angsty mood to read the prophets. Because I think the truth being told, when I'm feeling like the world is stable, 
when I feel like it's kind of under control, I find the prophetic books to be kind of hard to access. You know, this is especially true for me as a privileged religious white kid growing up in middle-class America, because in many ways, you have to be acquainted with and affected by injustice to fully access what the prophets are writing, to really get what they're saying. You know, most of these prophetic writings have intense, aggressive, and violent language in them. And when I'm sitting in my privileged experience of life, it feels too extreme to me. It feels uncomfortable, unsettling. However, when I feel the existential crisis of things that are truly high stakes, things of oppression, suffering, violence, war, then the language of the prophets begins to feel a bit like a protester in Hong Kong calling out for justice. You know, another thing that I have found that can make accessing the prophets a little difficult is the unfortunately common religious teaching to try to make the prophets relevant today by squeezing out somewhat individualistic, middle-class kind of object lessons from the prophets. That the suffering of the injustice of the people of Israel are, acute, are akin to the persecution of the American Christian, or like the war on Christmas, or the suffering of a people group is akin to our workplace relationships, or that the promise of the restoration of the people of Israel is akin to the promise of a restoration to the American Christian way of life. And what ends up happening, I see, is when we take these kinds of messages, these kinds of stories, and apply them to ourselves in that kind of way, we end up with people who are experiencing privilege. You have kind of powerful white middle-class Christians believing themselves to be the persecuted minority. You know, with all that said, I have come to learn that the wisest response to seeing the abuse of using scripture in that way is not to throw it out as an inaccessible or unhelpful, but try to understand it on its own terms, which I would suggest as resistance literature. And so I'm going to be starting a series. I'm going to be looking at the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. I think to me, as I sit and I look around the world and I see the protests happening in every corner, as I feel the high stakes experience of even just memes of World War III going on, I find that the prophets to be extremely helpful. And we're going to ask together how this resistant literature of the Hebrew people might help us today in the world we live in. And so to start this series off, I thought I'd ease us in. So we just came off the holidays. I figured there's like no need to bite off more than we can chew. So I decided today we're going to start off with Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Bible. It is one chapter, 21 verses. I was like, it is too early in the year to take on like, I don't know, Jeremiah. I don't have time for all of that right now. So we were like easing ourselves in. It's a one book, 21 verses. It's also a little unique in the fact that it's one of only four prophets out of the 18 where the injustice being addressed is that of another nation than Israel. It, it makes sense that all of the vast majority of the prophets, when they are speaking out about the wrong they see, being Hebrew prophets, they'd be talking about their own people. Whereas 
they, uh, Obadiah is addressing the injustice he has seen in Edom, which I'll get to in a moment. The specific injustice that Obadiah is responding to in writing this, the thing that God has risen up to speak out against is that Edom, a nation uh, that lays protected in the mountains just east of Israel, uh, stood by as Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and then rejoiced over the suffering and defeat of Israel. And then furthermore, when the Israelites were fleeing the sacking of Israel and came to the border of Edom looking for help, they were slaughtered and turned away by Edom. You know, and this, this injustice was made even worse by the fact that Edom who traces their ancestral heritage back to Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob, the father of Israel. And in that ancient culture, it would have been a particular offense that with their shared heritage, that not only did they not come to help, but they met the suffering of the Israelite people with further injustice. So, reading from Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourselves, Who can bring me to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest amongst the stars, there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomites believing because of their natural protection in the mountains that they themselves would be untouchable. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the nights, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they had wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? as the custom of that time would be, even if you were taking grapes from somebody, you would leave something behind. But how Esau will be ransacked, your hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you, making a point to what they did to Israel. To those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will not destroy the wise, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carted off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you will be like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in their day of destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through their gate, the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand their survivors in the day of their or hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. 
The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill. So all nations will drink continually. You know, there's a line there. As you have done, it will be done to you. That's one of those things that I'm like, I don't, that's not actually how I want to do my life. But I actually hear Greta Thunberg's words there of like, future generations will not forgive you. If you're reading this in the tone of people feeling that existential angst of resistant literature, these words, I think, take a different turn. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will stumble, and they will set on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. And then finishes off talking about how that land will be divided amongst Israel. Now, when I first read that, I think harsh words, Obadiah. There will be no survivors from Esau, like harsh. But I remind myself that this is resistance literature. Obadiah, an Israelite, is writing this as Israel is in the hands of Babylon. And Edom is thriving seemingly protected up in the mountains. Their injustice seemingly has gone unchecked, without consequence. And I think about the anger I feel as I think about the immigrants that were held in cages on our southern border, and I can only imagine what it would be like to see Edom thriving as they rejected your own refugees at the border who've been killed as they were fleeing to their brother nation for help then reading this resistant literature doesn't feel too harsh to me. You know, and I think there's even a little bit more context to this that I find helpful. How did Edom and Israel get like this? How did two nations sharing a heritage get to the place where one is rejoicing over the suffering of the other? It goes back to those ancestors, Jacob and Esau, a famous set of brothers from the book of Genesis in the Bible. You see, Esau was born first, even though only by a matter of seconds, as he was a twin with his brother Jacob, who was said to have come out holding on to his heel. But nonetheless, Esau was first born, which meant that Esau, in that culture, had the birthright and blessing of being the first and oldest son. And along with that birthright and blessing meant that he would have inheritance over the promised land, the fertile, blessed land of God's people. However, Jacob, with the help of his mother, tricked Esau out of his birthright and blessing and took it for himself. Jacob, whose later name was changed to Israel, took ownership over all the Lord had promised and at birth was rightfully Esau's. And this began generations of resentment. They did not suddenly get to a place where Edom delighted in the suffering of Israel. It was the result of their resentment. And to be honest, they were done wrong. Like this, there isn't like a great defense for what happened here. They were cheated by Israel. The hurt and injury done to the Edomites was real. Yes, they are up in the mountains and protected by the natural area around them, but the mountains were hard places to, to farm, hard places to grow things, where Israel sat in the fertile lands by the water. 
However, just because they had been wronged, even though the rift between these nations was started by an act of injustice done by Israel, it doesn't actually make it okay what Edom did. In the end, regardless of what others done, have done, I think the message of Obadiah is we destroy ourselves when we rejoice in the suffering of others, even when those others have done us wrong. And as I read this through the lens of resistance literature, when I think of the suffering I see around the world, when I think of the protests and the injustice, when I think of the smug comments of certain political commentators, of the dismissive words of some of those in power, I feel like this hits home. We destroy ourselves when we rejoice in the suffering of others. And so what does this mean for us today? And in asking that question, I put ourselves in the risk that I addressed in the beginning. The risk of what too often Christians in America living in privilege do. Taking the high stakes example of God speaking words of condemnation to a nation who has committed true injustice and then trying to make it an object lesson for our daily life. So just to say, if I was gonna come up with an object lesson, I actually think it would be a helpful one. Like I do think it would be helpful and wise for all of us to think about our coworkers, our bosses, our friends, our neighbors, our families who have wronged us. And try to make sure we're keeping our hearts soft to them, that we're not rejoicing when the coworker who stole our idea gets fired that we're not rejoicing that the boss who yells at us then gets yelled at. We're rejoicing when the ex who cheated on us then gets cheated on. You know, I think that is healthy and sound advice I would give to you. But I, I think keeping our hearts soft to others, even when they have done wrong to us, is healthy and good advice. But I don't think that's the message of Obadiah. I don't think that's what Obadiah is talking about. Obadiah is not trying to be an object lesson for our day-to-day -day life. Obadiah is trying to address what happens in the midst of generational war and violence. Obadiah is trying to implore us to keep our hearts soft and pained to the suffering of others, to never let ourselves get to the point that the suffering of a people group or the suffering of another person feels permissible or acceptable that we as a people, we lose something about who we are on a foundational level. Like Vince and I were talking before, we both like Harry Potter. It's like how Voldemort splits his soul every time he kills somebody. We lose something about who we are when the suffering of another person is anything but heartbreaking. And to be honest, I actually think this is really hard. Like, I, I know enough of you to think that there's nobody here that's like, I disagree. When the Packers suffer, we all win. No, it's, there's like, a, I, I know enough of you here to know that I don't actually, that pitch that the suffering of others is unacceptable, we're in on. But it is actually really hard to do. It feels overwhelming to let myself be affected by all of the suffering I'm made aware of. I'm not sure we were created to be aware of the injustice that is happening right now in our neighborhoods here around educational equity, about generational poverty here in Chicago, 
and having my heart be affected, understanding what's happening in Iran. Letting my heart be affected, understanding what's happening in Chile. Understanding what's happening and letting my heart be affected by what's happening in Hong Kong. I'm just not sure we were really meant to be aware of all of that at once. And it feels overwhelming to me. And often it leaves me feeling cynical. It leaves me feeling like there's nothing I can do about it. I just don't have the energy to care enough. Like if I were to allow myself to be heartbroken over it all, I would just be crying all the time and I just can't keep a job like that. And that to me is the challenge in this. You know, there may be some people that the convincing of, hey, suffering of other people is never acceptable. It's never okay for us to rejoice in. But to actually stay in the game and not let ourselves get hard or cynical about it, I find incredibly difficult. And sadly, I don't actually have a perfect answer. I don't have like the special, I don't know, exercise you can do. Pilates helps you do it. I don't know. Maybe. I should try that. But what I can tell you is the thing that has made the biggest difference for me, and that has been prayer. I have found that spending time in prayer, praying for those who are experiencing suffering, actually makes a difference. You know, I will say on one level, to say prayer feels trite. It is like literally sending thoughts and prayers is a stand-in for doing nothing in our culture. Like I'm not actually gonna do anything about it. I'm just gonna post thoughts and prayers. But I wanna say I, what I'm suggesting is different than that. I'm not talking about just sending my thoughts and prayers to the people experiencing the fires in Australia. I'm not talking about posting it or telling somebody something. I'm talking about something that you do for yourself internally. I'm talking about setting aside some time and praying for those experiencing loss from the fires of Australia for yourself. I'm talking about taking time and praying for the countless of nations that have protests going on fighting for justice. I'm talking about taking time that I spent praying for those that are experiencing what they're experiencing caged on our border. And that to me, I have found has been one of the very few ways to actually keep my heart soft, to actually prevent me from being cynical. And the truth is every action I've ever done in my life that has fought for justice, all, every time I have ever stood up for change is because my heart was feeling soft to it. I have never once acted out of cynicism. I have never once done anything out of feeling like there's nothing I can do. Every single time it was a result of my heart being moved. And so to me, the commission I've experienced here is keeping my heart in a place where it can be moved. Now, I'm not imploring you to now say, therefore, you need to conquer all of the world's problems. I have a good friend that once said to me, it is not our responsibility to do the things that God has not called us to do. It's not possible for us to tackle every issue, but we will tackle no issues if our hearts are not kept in a place to be moved by suffering around us. You know, there's a quote that I find helpful. It's not how I generally think of prayer, but in this case, it feels incredibly true. You know, Richard Rohr says, 
Prayer is not changing God's mind about us or anything else, but allowing God to change our mind about what is really right in front of us, which we usually avoid or distort. And so that's why my encouragement is to find some space to think about the things that grieve your soul and pray for those that are affected. You know, I don't post it on Facebook. Don't tell your friends you're doing it. There's actually something that happens in our brain on a neurological level when we tell somebody we're doing something or we post it on Facebook that is like a small dose of what happens when we actually do something. So it's like just enough for the monkey to get off of our back. What I'm encouraging you is to take some space. Take five minutes a week. Take the drive to church on Sundays. Take the commute in the morning. Take the two minutes before night. Or just take the moment you turn on the news and realize I can't watch that anymore. And pray for the grief that you feel, the suffering and the injustice you experience. And I'd love to do that now. So if you would stand with me, I'd like to pray. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. And in a moment, we're going to enter into a time of singing and prayer. We invite you to engage in that in any way that seems fit to you. Uh, If you want to sit back and let the music hit you, great. If you want to sing along, dance, go for it. And as that's happening, we're going to have a time of of prayer. And we'll have some people available in that middle section that will have badges. If you come in here with anything that feels like circumstantial need, a physical need, an emotional need, they'd love to just come alongside you and pray with you. If I've said something here that connects with you, if you find yourself prone to cynicism or prone to feeling overwhelmed by it all, I have found it incredibly helpful to invite other people into a prayer process with me. Now, Jesus, I acknowledge my own proclivity towards cynicism. This is why I find the prophets so helpful is that they always, always, along with calling out the injustice, come with a message of hope. And I ask right now that I would feel hope. I'd feel hope in a world that often feels so hard to feel hope in. And I pray right now that I bring to mind whatever person, people group, situation, whatever injustice feels pressing to me in this moment, I bring that to my mind and I pray, pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would change systems and structures to relieve the institutional injustice put in place. I pray that you would bring people that are there as supports and advocates. And I just pray that you would keep my heart soft And keep my eyes open for whatever ways you're calling me to step up and act. And also, keeping my heart from being overwhelmed. Keeping my heart from feeling shame that I can't do everything. But pressing me forward in a place that keeps my heart soft and open.